Well, good morning, Collective Church. How is everyone? Hey, if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name's Ryan Smith. I serve as the teaching pastor here. Uh, before we get rolling, closing out our spring series, um, a couple little things. One, uh, as Kyle just mentioned, we have that prayer night tonight, which, I mean, these are a monthly rhythm, second Sunday of every single month where we gather as a community to pray, not just to discern what God is doing in the midst of our community, but also to ask God, what are you leading us into and what are you calling us to? And so specifically as we go into Holy Week and Easter Sunday and Good Friday, I mean, what, what a better way uh, to kind of kick off this week. I mean, if you want to fast too, that's awesome. Um, but it may be just that, that first step of even saying, I'm going to start Holy Week off with, with a time of prayer. Uh, we would love to see you there at Cornerstone at 5. And then second, before we get moving today, uh, the model that we see of, of what a local church is meant to be in the New Testament is first and foremost that the local church is supported by the financial generosity of local Christians. And so that quick response code, if you want to give to a collective church, you can totally do that. But that's actually not what I want to talk about right now. Because what you find within the local church are instances where uh, one local church will support and come to the aid of other local churches in the midst of uh, trials and difficulty. And so the example you see in the uh, letters of First and Second Corinthians is when the church in Jerusalem was experiencing a famine, the church in Corinth was raising and sending money to support that church in their time of need. Uh, over the past few weeks, coming into months now, as we have been watching and praying in the midst of all that's been going on within the Ukraine, a lot of us have been praying for, but also wondering what are some ways that we can care and come to their aid in this time, and specifically other Christians and the work that they're doing. Uh, this morning, I just want to point your attention to novo.org. You can go to this website. This is one of, and I, I don't want to downplay this, one of uh, many, many, not just uh, institutions and, and ministries, but local churches that are meeting the needs of refugees and Ukrainians right now. Novo.org is a uh, church planning ministry kind of team that they build up and then plant new churches all over uh, the world. And so currently right now they have a team in Moldova that these, uh, this church is working 24 hours a day finding housing, food, and clothing, and emotional care for thousands of refugees as they are uh, coming over the border. They also have teams in Romania where, I mean, think about a church of our size, and all of you maybe have like a one or two room, you know, how big your, your house is, and you have members of the church that are opening up their homes, uh, giving housing for upwards of 10 of people in their, in their house. Um, we have a little, like, most of them, the example they give is a lots of these little two-room homes. That's what we have. And I, I can't imagine 10 people uh, in there. And yet this is what these churches and communities are doing. They've also started uh, there in Romania a free hotel as they're welcoming in people and giving them a free place to stay. And all of this, for those in Moldova and Romania, is they are caring while they, so to speak, have their bags packed, uh, depending on where things go from here. So I just want to point Novo to you. If you go to novo.org, at the top of their website, they specifically have a link where you can financially give to help in their Ukrainian crisis relief. And so that's going to be going to not just teams in Romania and Moldova and other surrounding uh, countries, but also for their teams in Ukraine right now, churches and pastors and mission in Ukraine right now. And on their website, you can sign up. They have a Zoom call this week with their teams in Ukraine with some updates of how things are going and how we can continue to pray. So I just want to set that before you. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is a pattern that we see represented within the New Testament is the church gets around. When other Christians are in need, we get behind them. And so novo.org, you guys can head there and you guys can give and, and pray through what that would look like for your family. And, uh, and we'll go from there. Sound good? Cool. 
grateful for you guys. Are you ready to end Ecclesiastes? Yeah. Well, nine weeks ago, we began our spring series with a reflection on uh, this kind of quote from a previous generation's journalist by the name of George Morrow Mayo. He wrote in 1933 in his History of Los Angeles, Los Angeles, it should be understood, is not a mere city. Rather, or on the contrary, Los Angeles is and has been since 1888, when everything got started down here, a commodity, something to be sold to the people like automobiles, cigarettes, and mouthwash. For those of us who live in Los Angeles, we are all being advertised and sold, a particular uh, L.A. state of mind, we might say. Ideas, desires, mental maps, and larger patterns of life that we are being shaped in the city of Los Angeles, what one historian called our city the Mirage Factory, what another historian called the Land of Smoke and Mirrors. We are being sold and shaped by something that, as many of us have found over the course of our lives, tends to be quite elusive and vaporous. So you see, to discover a life worth living in Los Angeles, you and I, we need to investigate what it is we're being sold how it is that we're being shaped, what are we being advertised to so that we might know how to then live actually in the way that we want to go rather than just what we're being sold. So for this spring series, the past nine weeks, the series Smoke and Mirrors, Deconstructing Los Angeles with the book of Ecclesiastes, we've been going through this book and allowing it to kind of point out and investigate the many things that we are being sold. And so if we just go back to the beginning of Ecclesiastes, you see, we first dealt with the, the vanity of wisdom and then the vanity of self-indulgence and pleasure. The vanity of wisdom, again, it's a, it's a double whammy. The vanity of toil and your career and work. The vanity of feeling like you have control over time. The fact that everything's dust to dust. The vanity of, of seeking for justice in this city and in this world. The, the, the vanity, like we've just gone through all of those things that you tend to look for, that our city tries to sell and shape you in. Each and every single one of these are 38 times the book has said vanity. The Hebrew word hevel, it's the word for smake, smoke, smake. What is that? Make smoke and vapor. Maybe that's what happened there. Smoke and vapor. It is uh, smoke and mirrors as we've been calling it. 38 times the, the author of Ecclesiastes has been looking for meaning and purpose. What is the end of mankind? What are we made for? And every single one of his searches, he has found that there is nothing lasting. There is nothing significant in these searches. There's nothing satisfying. All of it is a chasing after wind. And so as we close the book today, if everything is smoke and mirrors, how should we live our lives? That is the question the book ends with. If this has all been deconstruction, now we're in the phase of reconstruction. How do we survive and thrive in the city of Los Angeles, in the Mirage Factory? If you'll turn or tap in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 11, beginning in verse 7. Like I said, today is after nine weeks of deconstructing, showing how everything in this city and all of the allurements of this city are vapor and smoke and mirrors. This week, the author is gonna give us a little bit of a way forward, the deconstructor and then the author. A reconstruct, okay, here's how you live. How you can live and not be pulled aside by the advertisements, the shaping and selling of the city. So if you'll join me in standing as we read from Ecclesiastes today. 
Like I regularly say, if you're new here, we, we stand when we read from the scriptures, much like you might see someone kneel when they pray or raise their hands in worship a moment ago. It's a way of getting our bodies involved with our heart, to remember that the Christian faith is more than just a thinking or a feeling. It's, a, it's an embodied way of life, and this reminds us that this, this is God's word to us. And so Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we'll read all the way through the end of the book, Tear. For those that maybe, some of you guys are ready to get out of Ecclesiastes. You're like, vanity of vanities. When is this going to be over? So Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Let's close out the book today. It says, light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let them rejoice in all of them. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity, smoke and mirrors. Rejoice, O young man, or young, young man, or this is a, a universal language. Rejoice, a young person, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity, smoke and mirrors. Chapter 12. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the song of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and the terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along. Makes total sense, right? What are we talking about? We'll get there. And desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. The mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Smoke and mirrors, says the preacher, everything is smoke and mirrors. Now besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and attaining many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. Yes, the words of the wise, they're like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings and they are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there's no end and much study is a weariness to the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. And so, Father, here we stand today at the end of nine weeks uh, in the words of Ecclesiastes with the deconstructor. And we pray today as we come out that you would reconstruct the way forward and you would set our attention on the week ahead that this book would truly be a prequel. God's setting up the story for your son to arrive. 
God, for the goodness of, of Good Friday and the, the greatness of Easter Sunday, prime our hearts as we close this book. In name we pray, amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. Well, as the book closes, along with a weird poem about grasshoppers and people dropping uh, serveware, the, the, the main point of this kind of closing section is, is what you can kind of identify are these four elements for the good life in the land of smoke and mirrors, for life under the sun, four elements for life in Los Angeles. Do you want to survive this city without being sold and advertised and pulled over by something else that you don't actually want, only to find it smoke and mirrors? The book closes with four ways to ensure that that doesn't happen. The first, at the beginning of our passage today, was to rejoice in life. At the end of chapter 11, to rejoice in life. If you look back with me at 11, beginning in verse 7, we find the first call is what? That light, or it's a way of saying life, is good. It is delightful for you to see the sun. You know what that means? You're alive and awake. That's a good thing. And so the opening of the book is about the goodness of life. Specifically, it calls for, you know, it says all this language about the young man and rejoicing in the years of your youth. There's this interesting thing that the deconstructor would say here is for some of, you know, some of you maybe here, maybe not all of us, but for some of us here, you would see youth as like your 20s, your youth as your 30s, your youth as your, you, whatever, you know, youth would be for you. The whole point in the book of Ecclesiastes is youth is you're not on your deathbed. This is how the deconstructor sees you. Are you walking around? Do you have at least, you know, you got some future. You're still making plans for the weeks and months and years ahead. You are young in the deconstructor's language. And so for some of you here, I can see you might feel like this, you know, young man delight in your life. That's not me anymore. The deconstructor would say, are you here? Are you awake? Are you alive? Are you breathing? Then you are still, you're a young person. You are not on your deathbed. And so he calls for us in 11 verse 9 to rejoice in the life that we have. Let your heart cheer you. Walk in the ways of your heart, the sight of your eyes. This sight of your eyes language is something that we really hit on back in chapter 6. One of the verses that I've just carried with me throughout is in chapter 6 verse 9, the deconstructor wrote, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. The deconstructor here is saying, better is you delight, rejoice in what is right before you and what you can see. As we looked at last week in chapter 9, verses 7 and 10, the sorts of things that we're called to delight in is the the food that we eat and the clothes that we wear, the relationships that we have, the simple, ordinary things, the job that you rejoice, enjoy, celebrate those things. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Better is what is actual than what is digital. Better is what is actual than what is ideal. Delight in the life that you have, not the one that you think you should have. It's this call to delight in simplicity and contentment. And this, maybe you don't think so, but is one of the great defenses that you can have in not being pulled to and fro by the selling and the shaping of Los Angeles. You see, it is when we are not rejoicing in your life, when you are discontent with the life that you have, when you recoil from the life that you have, you are setting yourself up to be easy pickings for an advertisement of something to to say the life that you actually want is, you know, for a nice subscription of $39.99 a month. Like you can have exactly what, for this vacation, this car, when when you lose that contentment, rejoicing in the life that you have, You are easy pickings for every advertisement to come along. 
all of which only results in, as he says in 11 verse 10, vexation and pain. You know, is that kind of a strange, like put vexation and pain away from your body? What is he talking about there? All throughout Ecclesiastes, vexation and pain has been the language for what happens when you get to the end of chasing smoke and mirrors. You're exhausted and tired and met. I can't believe I chased after that. And so the deconstructor says, let it go. Stop chasing after these things that you know are not going to give you what you're looking for. They will only find vexation and pain, or German is the Weltschwertz. It's this uh, German word that, they, that was invented back in, uh, I think it was the 1800s. And what the word means is weariness of the insufficiency of the world to satisfy the deepest desires of the human heart and mind. We don't have a word for it, but the Germans do. And this is what the deconstructor is saying. I'm calling for you to live wisely in the city of Los Angeles, in the land of smoke and mirrors. And that means setting your attention on what's right here in front of you, the life that you actually have. Put away your wind chasing and rejoice in the life that you have. He does say, remember, you know, God's gonna judge if you're stupid, sinful, or selfish. But but at the same time, don't, don't miss out on the life that you have looking for something else. The key to doing this, he says in 11 verse 8, is remembering, the key to rejoicing in life is remembering that it's ending. In verse 8, what does he say? If a person lives many years, let them rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, that what you have, the life that you have, will not last forever. Just simply how this has been playing out is, is when you have... I'm trying to think of a good, here's an example of this. When you come and you are aware and you remember the end of something or the end of something is seen before you, it opens up a delight and enjoyment of your life that previously wasn't there. If you've ever uh, left your job, so you quit, you put in your final two weeks or whatever, and you hated the job, those last two weeks, it's not so bad. You know, your coworker that you sit next to every single day and you're like, I can't stand this guy. He is absolutely the worst. And those last two weeks, Jeff is so eccentric. You know, I just, oh, Jeff, like I'm gonna miss Jeff, right? Like Shannon down the hall, like, you know, oh, she's just so, she's so compassionate. She's in everyone's business, but she's just, she loves being a part of everyone's life. Like I would, to be like, when you're at the end of something, it opens you up to actually a delight and a rejoicing in it. You'll find this with so many people towards the end of their lives, the deathbed moments, is, is for some of them, it unlocks the ending of something, this deep appreciation for the life that they have. They're not focused on what they didn't buy, the vacations they didn't go on, the things that they didn't have, the people that they never met. They are so overwhelmingly overflowing with a rejoicing for the life that they have. And what the deconstructor wants is to pull us into that awareness of the end of things, into right now, right here. So simply in, in my own little story as this is playing out, is, you know, we do bath times fairly, more and more frequency with our little ones right now because they're getting more and more dirty on a regular basis. And normally after bath time, you know, we throw on music and like it just becomes like this naked dance party. Just to the kids, me and Aaron, we're fully clothed. Like, oh, one of those families. And, uh, and so the kid, Aaron and Arlo will run around the room dancing. And so lately we discovered a song by Baby Yoda called Chicky Nuggies. And it's just, it's like somebody with like a weird auto tune that brings their voice up just saying the word Chicky Nuggies over and over again. And our kids love it. And that's the life that we're living. And so here's what I mean by that. Here's the thing is when I bring an appreciation to the end of things is uh, every single time the, the dance party happens is this, this 
I, I don't know how many more of these I'm going to have. One, at some point, this is definitely going to end. Like by the time Emma's 50, I pray to God that's not happening anymore. <laughs> right? We have a problem. But the whole, the whole, here's the thing. Every single, I have no, some of you have, have friends or you know of people that in, in the middle of the sleep, you know, something happened while they were asleep and they just didn't wake up. Something happened on the way to work the next day. I am not promised another one of these. Every single thing that you go through in life, your, your relationships, your, your walks with friends, you're going out for coffee, the flavors, the sounds, the sights, the, the things that you enjoy, you are not promised another one of them. So the deconstructor would say, pull in that deep appreciation. And here's what's crazy is when you have that, even the most difficult moments of your life, you can still have some, some glimmer of this. Even in, in, you know, the deconstructor, you know, me and uh, Aaron, when we regularly have disagreements or whatever language you want to use for that, is the deconstructor would say, I, I, I'm not promised another day with Aaron. And man, a fight is better than like nothing, right? Us disagreeing and this being tense is better than nothing. My toddler's throwing a fit. At least I, I could be dead right now. And the deconstructor wants to bring this in as a source of hope for you. You're eating cup of noodles over the sink hastily to run out the door to like the next thing, busy and exhausted. Could be dead. It could always be worse, the deconstructor says. And by you lowering your expectations, you're able to actually find some enjoyment in your life. And you see this overlaps here, the rejoicing in life with a, well, you'll see behind me, uh, remembering your death. That these two things go together, they belong with one another, which is where the deconstructor goes in chapter 12, verse 1. Actually, the final paragraph of the deconstructor, the last words, is this second invitation to surviving Los Angeles, is to remember your creator, he says, which at first sounds really nice, right? Remember your creator in the days of your youth, and you're like, yes, I will. And then he goes, what, right after that, 12 verse 1, before the evil days come and the years draw near, you're like... So the remembering your creator is, this is language for remembering that you, remembering your creator is that you are created. Remembering your God is that remember that you are not him. You are mortal. You are not going to live forever. So remember your death, that it is coming. And that long poem of verses two through seven of grasshoppers and bulls dropping, what is that? This is a reminder. We're reading ancient Hebrew poetry. Thousands of years old, ancient Hebrew poetry, translated into English. And so what this is, is a reflection on the final years of life. And so I, it's just, I read one of my commentaries this week, spent 15 pages on those five verses of like, some people think that when in Hebrew culture people would die, they would throw a bowl or a plate or something on the ground and like some other commentary. But other people think that it might be like, while well, there's an accident and they fall over and drop something. And no, it's just a very confusing poem. Rightfully so, because we're not ancient Israelites. And also, even more than that, I'm a, I'm a relatively young guy. So me speaking to a poem, an ancient Hebrew poem about the end of life, I'm, I'm ill-equipped to answer this for you. So I'm going to pull in uh, Eugene Peterson, who passed away a couple years ago at the age of 85. Uh, he did a paraphrase of this passage for us that I think really, really helps. I'm very grateful for him. So he translates or paraphrases what we've just read. The grasshopper poem is this. He says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the years take their toil and your vigor wanes, before your vision dims and the world blurs and the winter years keep you close to the fire. In old age, your body no longer serves you so well. 
Muscles slacken, grip weakens, joints stiffen. The shades are pulled down on the world. You can't come and go at will. Things grind to a halt. Even the hum of the household fades, fades away. You are wakened now by birdsong. Hikes to the mountain are a thing of the past. Even a stroll down the road has its terrors. Your hair turns apple blossom white, adorning a fragile and impotent matchstick body. Yes, you are well on your way to eternal rest while your friends make plans for your funeral. Life, lovely while it lasts, is soon over. Life as we know it is precious and beautiful ends. The body is put back in the same ground it came from. The spirit returns to God who first breathed it. So the deconstructor gives this final closing poem of remembering that that trajectory, the movement of your life from strong and the vigor of youth to at some point apple blossom white hair and an impotent matchstick body, that everyone is moving that direction. I don't know if I'm going to have the hair by the time that I get there, but we are all moving in that direction. And this reminding of our, our death not only reminds us and brings a rejoicing of our life, it also too serves as a great defense against the selling and shaping of Los Angeles. When we see that death is coming and there's nothing we can do about it, we can see Los Angeles for, as Marge Piercy put it, the city that is nothing but a slot machine dispensing plastic toys. Once again, Marge Piercy, the city of Los Angeles, is the city that is nothing but a slot machine dispensing plastic toys. We are given with our little time and our money and our values, these little trinkets of work and pleasure and wealth and popularity and vacations. All of these little things that we're getting our little plastic trinkets that make us happy for a little bit and then they melt in the summer heat. Death will ultimately sweep all of them away. As we said earlier in this, for all of those little trinkets that you pull, at best, the higher level, highest levels of honor and fame and popularity you will reach, you will at best only one day be a difficult question on trivial pursuit. Even, and you reach the highest levels of, of Hollywood and fame, and, and you at best, you will be a name written on a sidewalk, smeared with mess as people walk over on their way to something greater. All of your clothes will one day be moth-eaten. All of the picked, all of the work that you do will one day be forgotten. That company is sooner or later going to close. All of your work will be, you, everything is going to end. And that you just, that perspective, you see the slot machine for what it is. Similarly, when we remember not just the certainty of death, but the uncertainty of life, this allows us to have a, de a defense against Los Angeles's motivating drive, these presumptions of control over our life. If I'm good, if I do the right things, then my life will go good. This is what goop is built on with Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, you, gotta, you buy these products, you get this lotion, you eat this kale salad, you do this, you do that, and you will be healthy and fit and awesome. So says Gwyneth Paltrow. And so we go, and it's a slot machine of control. If I do the right things, if I push the right buttons, my life will go well for me. And the deconstructor says, you need the uncertainty of your life. You can eat nothing but kale for all of your life and still get hit by a car. You can, you can say no to everything and do all the right things, and you will still, you have no control over this. You can be the perfect parent, and your kid can just, you all of your things that you're motivating, you can run your business perfectly with all of that. And you, 2008, all it takes is a recession and you, you can lose it all. To remember your death is also to remember the uncertainty of life, to give up those presumptions of control. 
And so the deacon structure reminds us again in 12 verse 8, as he began and 38 times said throughout the book, so he ends it, all is vanity. Everything is fleeting. It's smoke and mirrors, especially you. And remembering that is actually the way to find life and rejoice and enjoy while we have it, but also it unlocks a wisdom for us. In 11 chapter 7, I don't know why I turned, I'm in Song of Solomon now. I didn't mean to turn over. The sermon was about to get very different very quickly. (laughs) In 11 uh, verse 7, the deconstructor moves from talking about, or excuse me, in uh, 12 verse 9, the deconstructor has now concluded and now the author comes back to kind of like, the image in my mind is the deconstructor has been like your grandpa sitting on the porch and telling you about all of his mistakes, hoping that you'll learn from them. And now the author is like grandma comes back and sits back down. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's what to do with all of that. I know that was long. Grandma's here to help. So what does the reconstructor say? What does the author say? She calls us, or they call us to receive the wisdom that we've heard. In 12, 9 through 11, the, the author kind of rebuilds everything that we've seen the deconstructor do, bringing together wisdom and knowledge and truth for us. And so don't ignore what you've looked at in this book. Don't move on back to your life as you think you want it to go. Hear this. Receive the skill of life in remembering your death and in rejoicing your life, finding the smoke and mirrors of it all. Wisdom helps, and so don't ignore this. But then in 11 and 12, the deconstructor continues, the author continues and says, but wisdom also does hurt. Did you notice this? It says, basically, chill out when it comes to wisdom. It says, this, all this that you've read is really, really good, but in verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, sharp sticks. And wisdom is like nails that have been put onto a stick poking a sheep to wake it up and get it moving in the right direction. So beware of anything beyond, beyond these. There's lots of books out there, and the more you study, the more tired you will be. So the, the author seems to say, this is really, really helpful, the whole smoke and mirrors thing. Receive this, but, and, and then move back into your life. Don't stay here in the deconstructor space. Keep deconstructing, keep smoke and mirrorsing, and, and you just... It, you'll be exhausted. You'll give up on life. So we're meant to spend time with grandpa, but then go back to our lives and not just sit there with our, you know, depressive grandpa who probably needs some medication or something. The whole point is this wisdom is necessary, but it also, we need to hold it rightly. And so again, this is another defense against the shaping and selling of Los Angeles, where once again, we are sold and advertised away a life of ignoring wisdom, living life on the seat of our pants, but also, like I talked about a moment ago, idolizing it and going at that if I do all the right things, if I have all the right wisdom, if I time block, then, then I'm gonna get all the promotions that I want and I'm gonna be awesome in work. You, just, you have no control over these things with wisdom. Both extremes of either ignoring or idolizing wisdom will only lead to vexation and pain. And so receive it, as better but broken, and move on with your life. Continue with this. This world is smoke and mirrors. It's uncertain, so don't look to yourself to make sense of it all. You need to look for something or someone beyond it all, which is where the author ends in verses 13 and 14. And so here we are. The very end of the book, the author's final counsel is in verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of of mankind. The author's final counsel is to remain faithful to God, to keep his commandments, 
This is the whole duty of mankind, it says. The whole du- this is the purpose of what it means to be human, to live. And I've been operating through how best to summarize the Hebrew language for fearing God, because it, you can go to one side or two without missing the tension. Fearing God, you can go to one end where it's kind of this Zeus with a lightning bolt thing, which does not seem to be the Old Testament's portrayal. But there's also fear God where we lose all of that, and like fear God just means like, you know, respect him and like, hey, you're cool. Like we, 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 there's like a far end. Somewhere in the middle is probably where I think we need to operate. And the language that I've been using for this is, is responsive reverence. To, to live with a responsive reverence to God's voice is what it means to fear God. That when God speaks, I listen. That I, rev- I honor and respect. And I, when he speaks, I listen. As I was trying to think through this, the image came to mind back when Emma was like two years old probably. And we, uh, kind of similar to one of our neighborhood dinners, we had gone out with some friends and picked up some uh, food for a local shelter, and we were on our way back to kind of do Bible study stuff. And we're on the front yard waiting for everyone, and parked across the street was uh, one of the members of our little group named Trey, who Emma at the time had a crush on. She was all about Trey. And so we're on the front lawn, and we're waiting, and she sees Trey, and we park, you know, cars are parking up, and Trey, arms go up, and she starts running after her. And what she doesn't realize, because there's cars parked around here, is she's walking out into the road, and then there's another member of our group that's coming up to park on the other side of the street over here. Completely unaware of this, Emma's just like walking, like, going to go see Trey. I'm going to get a hug, and I'm going to get, Trey's going to hold me. This is going to be great. And so I have, she's too far away for me to do anything but just yell, Emma Kinsley, stop now. And like, there's that little two-year-old, right? Responsive reverence. What, right? And so she, she pauses and stops, and this is the, I, when we hear fear of God sometimes, we put this as something that's opposed to God's love for us or our love for God. How can I, what the scriptures are inviting us into when we talk about fear of God is a responsive reverence. The very reason why we, God speaks strongly, why we stop immediately is all within the context of a relationship of, of that I want to snuggle with my daughter and I want to see her grow and I want to walk with her. I don't want her to get hit by a car, amen? And, and so often I think what we do within, this is, I'm out of my notes now, but I think necessary for collective. Emma was in the notes, but this part isn't. I think so often what I see within most of our church is we love and gravitate towards God as like father or Abba or you know, Papa, the Aramaic word, and we love the intimacy that that reflects and we want that. And we spurn any kind of relationship where God would actually speak something authoritatively to us. So I want the God that snuggles with me, but not the God that stops me when I'm about to get hit by a car, when I'm about to chase after something that's smoke and mirrors. And I think a right posture that the the deconstructor ends this book with is one of responsive reverence that when God speaks, if it's an invitation toward him, we run into it. If it's an invitation to stop, we heed it. We hear that. And so what I want to invite all of us into is a longing to step into this a little bit more because we need a defense from a city that, that gladly invites us to step into the oncoming traffic of smoke and mirrors of being shaped and sold into something else. Because here's the thing is you have a responsive reverence towards someone or something. You are being discipled by something. You are being led into and shaped by and sold something. You fear something in this language. There is something that your life motivates and revolves around and the city is happy to present you with all kinds of different versions of it. 
And the whole point of this book has been to show you that anything other than the creator God is smoke and mirrors. It is not going to lead you where you want your life to go. And so for us to survive Los Angeles, we need dedicated rhythms and habits of listening to the voice of our Father. Of, of, of giving our attention to hear from God who sees what we don't, to allow moments like Ecclesiastes to help us see things that we can so often forget. And so these dedicated habits of listening can happen through our integrated Bible study, which we read the scriptures every single week, then we preach those scriptures when we're here, we discuss and apply those in our discipleship groups. This is also part of our prayer, which that's our response time in a minute, our prayer night tonight, there's another advertisement for it. If we are going to survive Los Angeles, we need rhythms and patterns so that we might remain faithful because our faith is being contested. It's being invited by something else. And the question is, what is that? Now, in all of these four things, here you find this paradigm that I think the book ends with for finding the good life in the land of smoke and mirrors. This is the reconstruction after deconstructing everything else. A paradigm of life where we rejoice in our lives, we remember death, we receive wisdom, and we remain faithful. And in the sweet spot of those four things coming together, this is how you survive life in Los Angeles. This is how you thrive in the land of smoke and mirrors, is the overlap of these four things. And so much of our life, I would say, is not so much that we just negate all, all of these, but that we are um, content to pick from a few of them. But all the same, we end up in foolishness. Uh, you're going to see a big mess of things behind me as I have been trying to put this into words this week. And I might change some of these on the fly because I've been chewing on this all week. I think there's something here. You guys can tell me if there's not, but we're going to talk about it because it's been helpful for me. So here's the thing. We need all four of these, rejoicing in life, receiving wisdom, remembering death, and remaining faithful to find life that is, has substance and meaning where, where nothing else does. And the, the propensity for most of us is to pick one, two, or three, but never all four of these. That's where our heart goes. And it lands us in different kinds of foolishness. So the first example is if we remain faithful to God and we rejoice in life, but we don't have wisdom or remembering our death, we are what we could call the happy-go-holy uh, person. This is, the best is yet to come. Everything's great. God's got, like, these are the, the, the perennial over-optimist, where they, they don't, their life is just, they're along for the ride. Everything's falling apart all the time, but they're just kind of like, everything's great all because Jesus is God. And you're like, you're, you, you're just, you're not living within reality. And then the bigger thing is that they aren't able to offer any wisdom or mourning with people that are actually going through death. Some of you have been with these kinds of Christians who when you lose a family member or you're going through a hard time, and what do they appeal to? Not wisdom or sitting in mourning. They just want you to remain faithful to Jesus and just rejoice in what you have. It's not helpful. It's not a wise way to live. On the other side, if you rejoice in life and receive wisdom, but you don't have faithfulness to God or remember death, you're the hedonist fool. Using wisdom and smarts with life to concoct not anything that's a wise way. It's it's ultimately around you finding the pleasure and joy that you have. Hedonism, this pursuit of pleasure, and you use all of your wisdom to make your life better and easier for yourself. The next is those who receive wisdom but remember death. That is the nihilist fool. Nothing matters. It's all the end. This is what, De- this is what Ecclesiastes feels like to most of us, mainly because most of us don't ever want to remember death or receive wisdom. We really like the happy-go-holy. Most of us do. And then finally, if we remain faithful and remember death, then we have what we could call Eeyore Christianity, which is you like, you love God 
Um, but like rejoicing in your life and receiving, you're just like, Meh. this is also Calvinism. Uh, I kind of am one, so I, I, I can make the joke. Uh, the ER Christianity, which is just like, God loves us, and like, every, like all, life's awful, and like the one, my one hope in life is that God loves me. It's like, yeah, that's true, but like, he also created a really good world and like has invited you to live within it. And then you also have, I know we're getting complex here, these overlap of these where you have three but not all four. So if I, uh, let's start with, uh, we'll start with me. If we remain faithful, rejoice in life, and receive wisdom, but we recoil from the reality of death and the uncertainty of life, then we are what's called the perfectionist fool. Hello, good morning, here I am. Is my belief is what? That life actually is pretty certain, and if I work all the right buttons, if I pray, and I do the right wisdom stuff, and I delight in the life that I have, things are gonna go great for me. And the reality of the uncertainty of life and the certainty of death is a hard wake-up call. It's the perfectionist fool. If you have life and wisdom and remember death, you are the ho- that's the hopeless fool. You have nothing beyond the smoke and mirrors to look to. And so your life might be wise and joy-filled and, you know, you got some remembering your death, but there's nothing beyond it for you to look to. There's hopelessness at the end of it all. If you remain faithful, receive wisdom, remember death, but you don't rejoice in life, this is the Gnostic fool. That's a word that's used to describe a particular type of heresy or false teaching within the church which views the created world as evil and something to be escaped from and not delighted and resurrected. And so the Gnostic fool goes, anything good is bad. Like, this is, it's, you know, the music, flavors, life, goodness stuff. All of my hope is in, like, resur- going to heaven when I die and getting out of this sticky, icky material world. And it's a, it's a heresy. More on that next week. And, uh, and then finally, rejoice life, remain faithful, remember death. This is, I can't figure out the best language for this, but it's the spiritual fool. And this is the person who, they've got some framework for death in life, and they love Jesus, but they just, they, they're just, they just don't make good decisions. You just, you watch their life and you're just like, you're constantly fumbling over yourself. Your relationships are a mess. You, you just, you're not appealing to actually learning anything, it seems like, other than like loving Jesus, but you don't actually know what that looks like. So that's a spiritual fool. Maybe you guys can think of better language for this. Here's, I want to set this to you as for your discipleship groups this week and even just for yourself. Which of, where am I prone to land within this? Where am I prone to take one, two, or three, but definitely not four? And what would it look like for me to find a, a shaping of my mind, as Paul says in Romans chapter 12, a renewal of my mind to receive all four of these and hopefully be able to survive Los Angeles? Because the one that you're weak in is definitely going to be the way that Los Angeles appeals to you most. So there's that. You guys said, mm, so I, I, don't, I don't feel like I need to say anything else. You guys are tracking there. So here's this paradigm. I hope this is helpful. Let's land the plane and let's also get ready for uh, Holy Week here. Now, the purpose of Ecclesiastes has been to get you and me right here, this paradigm for our lives, this kind of four-pronged setup. This is the end of mankind, the purpose, a practical paradigm for life. Now, here's the question. Why not just write those four things down? Like Ecclesiastes 1, rejoice in life, remember death, remain faithful, and uh, receive wisdom. Cool. Song of Songs, awesome, here we go, like on to the next book. Why a whole book of detailing and teasing all of this out? And that is because I've been waiting to get here for nine weeks. Everything in the book of Ecclesiastes has been written before. There is a whole book of the Bible that sounds just like this. 
Another book that is entirely composed of the wise words of another preacher who stood up and said, everything other than God is, is hevel. In fact, he coined the term of defining anything other than God as smoke and mirrors. He called for his audience to remember God as creator. He called for his audience to rejoice in life as a gift. Like in Ecclesiastes 7, he too said that God had created man upright, but they have sought after many schemes. He too called for God to remain faithful, to fear God and keep his commandments. In fact, the author at the end of the book here is quoting from his sermon. It's called the book of Deuteronomy, and the preacher is Moses. As Moses led all of God's people out from slavery in Egypt, they get on the Jordan River, and they're about to go into the promised land on the other side. And and Moses turns around and gives this sermon to them, detailing how this is what the good life is going to be. If you guys lean into faithfulness and delighting in your life, that's like what a whole feast days and Sabbath were all about, rejoicing in your life. If you remember your creator, that you are not him, that death is, you are from dust and to dust you're going. If you'll receive the wisdom that I'm giving you today, you will have life and not death. And so he sets it all before them with the same language, themes, and call that Ecclesiastes would pick up. But Moses ends mourning the fact that Israel would run from God and they would go after what's smoke and mirrors. That it would only result in their disillusionment and death. And so Ecclesiastes now is picking up at the story and it's detailing, it's the, Ecclesiastes is the sequel to the book of Deuteronomy. It is an investigation to was Moses actually lying or is that actually where the source of all of our disillusionment and frustration with life is? Was Moses actually right? And the whole book ends with, yes, he was. Now some of you might be like, okay, cool Bible nerd thing, Ryan, like Ecclesiastes is Deuteronomy part two. Here's the whole point of what the scriptures are getting to when we see the repetition here. The fact that this needs to be said multiple times is you don't simply need to be reminded of this or told this for the first time. The fact that this is twice in the Bible, two whole books saying almost the exact same thing is a revelation of the fact that the human heart, both in Israel and in you and me, is predisposed with a gravitational pull towards smoke and mirrors. And you feel it within yourself. You know how? Nine weeks we've been talking about everything other than God is smoke and mirrors. And what has Monday to Saturday looked like for most of us? Wandering back into oncoming traffic. That's been me. I'm not putting that on you. That's on Ryan right now. And so these two books sit together as a statement that we are desperately in need of something new down here. Because we keep chasing after schemes of smoke and mirrors. We recoil at the lives that we have, discontent with the gift of God. We run from the certainty of death and we buy into the delusions that we can somehow be eternal. We resist wisdom and we chase after what we want. We resist faithfulness and put ourselves on the throne of God. And we fail in all of this to what is the end of mankind. We fail to be human. And so the end of these two sermons then end us like this. Ecclesiastes ends like we wrote a moment ago. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret one, whether good or evil. Moses' sermon ends. And the Lord your God will cut away the calluses on your heart and your children's hearts, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, that you may live, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord, that's a synonym for fearing God throughout the scriptures, and keep all his commandments that I command you today. 
Do you feel a little bit of tension, though, between the two? Both talk about fearing God as keeping his commandments, but is God going to judge every deed? Or is God going to cut away the calluses and save and renew our hearts? Who's right? Will God save or will God judge the smoke and mirrors that humanity has bought into? As we move into Holy Week, we move into the weekend where both things happen in the same event. You see, on Good Friday, what happened was God in the body and the death of Jesus was in, at work in judging all of our hidden and secret evils. All of your and I, our foolish faithlessness, everything going on, everything that results only in death, Jesus goes into the death that all of our stupidity ends in. And as Jesus was cut off from life, this is the work, as the Apostle Paul would put it, what he was renewing in our hearts, that he was cutting away the calluses that are on your hearts, the things that keep us from living into what is actually lasting, significant, and satisfying. And in a week from today, with Easter Sunday, Jesus' resurrection, this new heart has been given to humanity for those who come to Jesus, this new life that's available for you and me, where you and I are now able to actually be human again finding a delight in our life, receiving our posture as, 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 as human beings, not as God, and remaining faithful and receiving wisdom, all of this through Jesus. We rejoice in our life now as signposts of new creation. Even as we remember our death and the humbling work that that is, we are able to groan along with all of creation, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, waiting for the revelation of the new glory of a renewed creation. We are able to receive wisdom as who is that one good shepherd who pokes us, even though it hurts, into the right direction as Jesus, the good shepherd. And we remain faithful as we abide in his love and his faithful spirit. And so the invitation for you and me as we move into Holy Week today is for us to repeat the words of that crowd that welcomed Jesus in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which is what we're observing and remembering today. They brought the donkey. This comes from the Gospels of Jesus as he moves into the city. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their cloaks, and Jesus sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were all shouting, Hosanna, that is, save us, we pray, to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Ecclesiastes is not just a sequel to Deuteronomy. Ecclesiastes is the prequel to Holy Week. Because what this book does is it deconstructs, it cuts down the branches and tears off the cloaks of all the smoke and mirrors that we so often sit under and cover ourselves with. And we lay them at the feet of Jesus and we allow them to become the means through which he comes to us. And so the invitation for all of us here is we can either keep our nice little cloaks of smoke and mirrors, as vexing and painful as they are. We can continue to keep our trees all nice, neat little focus of how your life goes and how things are. Or you you can take these things down to find them for the smoke and mirrors they are and allow, in so doing, to pave the way for that which is lasting, satisfying, and significant. And so that's the invitation for all of us today of once again, or for the first time, what are you remaining faithful to? What is the whole duty of mankind for you? What are those shaping rhythms? What are you being sold? And how is that going for your life? The invitation of Ecclesiastes is, this, it, it's smoke and mirrors. And the invitation is to find something greater in the person of Jesus. Let's pray.